The words in this passage immediately turn our thoughts to what exactly is persecution. Because the kind of statements that Jesus is making here are very dramatic in form. He's not just talking about a little bit of opposition. He's talking even to where the point is where people would even think they're doing God a service by putting believers to death. So it's an extremely serious subject. It's not one I can start with a preacher's joke or something like that. So I was not, don't really make an apology for that. But I want us to look to some extent and compare where we are here in England to where others might be, where I have lived before, um, which is in the Middle East as a missionary, and make some comparisons. There's been quite a bit of talk in recent years about whether Christians in the UK are suffering specific persecution. There was even a piece on the radio about it. And you may have uh, seen some cases of alleged discrimination and actually um, proven discrimination against Christians, which has been taken up both in the press and in the courts by groups like Christian Concern, which is the most visible one that takes uh, action through the courts, through the Christian Legal Centre. And you may know that's run by somebody I know very well in Haywards Heath. So it's not very far away that a lot of these things are happening. Now, some of these cases clearly demonstrate how some employers and others in general, the general community seem to single out Christianity as a specific target and yet favour other groups. The British Secular Society regularly appears in the media with a particular anti-Christian stance. And we in hospital chaplaincy, which is where I work um, in the local hospitals, across the country every now and then the British Secular Society targets us as chaplains and tries to come up with ideas why we shouldn't exist. Um, once heard, actually, this challenge brought by them when they were interviewed on the Today programme, you know, the morning Radio 4 news programme. And the, uh, the presenter that day, I think it was the Irish guy, I can't remember his name now, but um, he challenged this representative of the secular society and said, well, just how many people do you represent? Yeah. You're talking about taking away the kind of care that chaplains provide and all that kind of thing? I thought you normally stood up for minorities, he said. That's what you usually do when you come on this program. <laughs> and it was quite amazing to hear us, what I assume is a secular reporter, challenging like that. And we have to sometimes challenge in an apologetic way. We sometimes have to challenge along the line of medical ethics. I was in a conference this week in London um, listening to the Archbishop of Canterbury's advisor on medical ethics at a conference for chaplains. And where our Christian ethics will go head on against the secular ethics and how we have to have a reasoned argument that doesn't deny our Christian faith but also considers what indeed our specific needs in a person in a particularly poor state of health. It comes out, obviously, very dramatically in the debate about assisted suicide. So incorporated all that in, in our discussions and that kind of thing. 
But quite re reasonably, we look at persecution generally as those who oppose us because we are Christians. And one of the most graphic examples of this that has come to our attention recently, I expect you saw it on the news because it was featured quite often at the beginning, is those demonstrations by the Coptic Christians in Egypt where they were on the streets peacefully um, doing a, a protest and they were then set on by various people including military, police, various individuals. And there was some very serious persecution going on at that point. Now, you may have never known much about Egypt, but this sort of persecution has been going on for decades. It's probably been going on most of the time. The Coptic Christians have been in existence. Do you know who planted the church in Egypt? Any idea who planted the church in Egypt? Sorry? No, Mark, who wrote the second gospel. That's how old the church is, right? So these Coptic Christians have nearly 2,000 years of history behind them. And most of it is marked by persecution that is very serious of one sort or another. It's a place I know quite well because when I was working in the Middle East, I was actually, to some extent, responsible for a major evangelistic activity centre in Cairo. It was a centre that provided what we called audio-visual aids in those days. I, don't know, I probably call it media centre now or something. But it distributed evangelistic audio-visual aid materials in various forms to about a thousand parishes in Egypt. And because of the project that was building the subway, the underground railway system in Egypt, the French contractor, um, he was not constrained by the sort of rules you have in France, he was constrained by very little other than build a subway, and so he just drilled a dirty great hole underneath Cairo without thinking too much of the consequences. And what it did, it actually ripped through the sewers of a whole area of, of Cairo um, in which the church building and its associated building sat that had this centre. And the sewers overflowed into the streets, into the church and everywhere else. And I went out there to see if I could do something about it. <laughs> I'm not an I am an engineer, but not a civil engineer. I'm a telecoms engineer by background. Anyway, you can't make any repair to a church building in Egypt under current legislation without a presidential decree. Not going to make the repair work very hurried, is it? <laughs> going to take some time to get a presidential... Has any presidential decrees been issued recently? None that I know of. Never heard of them. Plenty of, plenty of applications, but no. Uh, Mubarak's gone, so hopefully things will change. So, we had to meet in secret, those of us that were going to do anything about this. And we did. We had ways, of, ways and means of doing such things. Um, we certainly didn't have mobile phones to worry about and all that kind of things in those days. And anyway, one brave civil engineering student said he knew where he could get a bag of cement because we'd found where the hole was that this leak was coming in. It was very small. It was probably smaller than one of these little brass things in the floor here. And it was just bubbling out all this sewer water and it, and it had flooded this entire building. 
so that it was about just beyond ankle deep. It didn't smell very nice either. And uh, so in, in, at night time, we, we got into this building and we managed to clear away the water enough to do a repair with this kind of waterproof cement stuff. And we, uh, we hadn't been away from there very long and um, somebody realized what had happened and um, they started wanting to know who'd done it. I'd gone back to Cyprus by that stage and uh, it was a bit of a furor because I hadn't got a presidential decree. <laughs> so I was kind of eligible for a prison sentence in Cairo. Um, anyway, I went back and forth to Egypt and they never, they never arrested me. So it was taken after a considerable prayer by the Christian community. They didn't want this whole, whole place would have been destroyed. Every in that building, every, all, that, all those materials that have been collected over the years and sent, mainly by Presbyterian missionaries in the United States, um, would have been destroyed. And we weren't prepared to just, you know, we knew, we knew what would happen if any formal applications were made. So we just did it. And fortunately, um, after a bit of quiet talking, nothing happened. But it's a risk, and it's the kind of risk you wouldn't even think of in England, would you? you? You just wouldn't even think about it. Really, those kind of risks. Now, these Coptic Christians, and I met many of them. I used to meet with their bishops, and they used to sometimes bring me problems. And uh, on one occasion, a group um, that is now called Middle East Concern that I was involved in starting out there produced a report on Egypt, and I was able to take it to the Foreign Office and talk to our people in the Foreign Office about all these things that were going on. And a lot of it was the persecution against these Copts and what was going on with them. The Copts actually were protecting some converts from Islam as well and very, doing it very carefully, but it didn't always work out well. Around that time, these converts were highlighted and they were captured and put in prison and severely tortured. Now, the Coptic Christians have been used to this kind of persecution for years. And many of them will have on their wrists, both wrists, a little cross, a little tattoo cross. And it's right over the main vein, the main sort of bloodstream area there. It said that the position is such that even if they're tempted to deny Christ, these crosses cannot be removed under torture without the blood flow being sufficient that they would simply die. Because they'd then die for their faith. It's quite a different idea to a tattoo to what we have in England. Quite a different reason for it altogether. So this is the kind of level of commitment that these people have. From the moment, as it were, their faith begins to develop when they're young, they know that they will be persecuted in the way that Jesus talks about in this passage. They will know that they will be hated just as the, word, as, as the world hates Jesus. Because unless... There has been something that's happened in Egypt in the last week or so which has changed some of the legislation about identity because you have to have an identity card if you're an Egyptian and it has to say with you're Christian or Muslim. 
Um, and some mixed marriages, the children were forced to be called Muslim. And now that has been changed by the government that's sitting at the moment in Egypt, which is a kind of interim government. But I don't think there's any change yet on the acceptance of people converting. So when I was around, these guys were in prison because they converted. And I met some of them afterwards, and they have really been severely tortured in many different ways. And so that was the sort of promise, if you like. You couldn't evangelize in Egypt as a Westerner unless you were prepared to really sit where they sat. It wasn't any point in going there as a missionary and thinking you would have an easy time and they would have the hard time. That wouldn't be right. So that's the challenge, if you like, to those of us that come from the West when we go into a country like that, as to how committed are we to the gospel? What would we do? We probably call our embassy and, and try and get some help. There was at one time, in the midst of all these um, imprisonments, an American um, that was put in prison. Now, he, he was obviously um, a missionary of some sort. I don't remember who he worked for, but I remember uh, being involved in the case and at some point talking to a member of his family. Um, but it, he was helped by the fact that we could very personally lobby both the White House and Congress in the United States. And it was through that pressure that the Egyptian government arranged his release. Now, he too had suffered some torture. It was mainly what you would call psychological torture. But he was one of few missionaries in Egypt that has, has suffered that. So, I'm just sort of giving you those examples of, of how the kind of level of commitment that we have to Jesus is often going to be marked by the circumstances in which we live. Unfortunately, at the moment, we live in circumstances that don't bring that kind of opposition. It does bring opposition of a sort, um, but the Human, the Human Rights and Equalities Act legislation in this country have amazingly given rights to us as Christians that we kind of didn't have before. It's, it's a kind of bit of a misunderstood bit of legislation. Um, but for example, it means that in my work, we all have a right to practice our Christian faith. Whether we're in hospital, in a nursing home, or in the community generally. Nobody can be denied that right. It's now enshrined in law. It wasn't before. There was no protection at all. So there's some of the positive sides of what, what's happening. Now we can't sort of shy away from the kind of outspoken opposition that we, we do find around us. And I suppose one of the, the big things that, that's happened in recent years is the sort of general opposition, the sort of mockery of Christianity and the, and the opposition that comes from people, the, the famous atheist debaters like Richard Dawkins. And um, I don't know how much you've read of his or heard of him, but he was in a debate, and he's debated on two or three occasions with an Oxford professor who's a Christian, who I heard at a, a new wine conference two or three years ago. And 
I think his name is Professor Cox. And in one of these debates with Richard Dawkins, who's banging on about atheism, Professor Cox made the point that actually the key thing that our argument is about whenever we meet opposition is the nature and person of Jesus Christ and the fact that we believe he rose from the dead. That'll be the crunch line. You can actually carry on a debate in general about is there a God or what kind of God is he with almost anybody. And it doesn't get difficult until you say, well, God came to this earth and his name is Jesus. Whoops, hang on a minute. This is a whole different story altogether from just believing in a general God that God should come in the form of a man, Jesus, is different. And then to say, well, actually, he died, and then he rose from the dead as well. Now, oh, whoa, this is, this is even more outlandish an idea, you might think, than just a nice ethereal God up there in the universe. But people will suddenly become very exercised in their opposition if you begin to go down that particular line. Because it becomes personal, doesn't it? If you can say, I know God because of Jesus, or you can say, Jesus came and he healed people and he performed miracles and all this kind of thing. It's, it makes it more, more personal. It means you kind of have to make a decision about this guy. You can't ignore him. And that's why it gets, it gets to be a struggle. And some people will be very pointed in their opposition. So what, what level of commitment do we have? And are we actually sort of, okay, we haven't got that kind of persecution at the moment that they have in Egypt. But we may, we may be persecuted. We may have somebody... Um, come into a situation in our work where we have a conflict of interest. And a conflict of interest is precisely around what we believe is the right thing to do as Christians. And that is a sort of crunch point. Should we be always worrying about that? Well, Jesus made another statement in Mark which I think is useful to, to ponder before we come to a close. In Mark chapter 13 and verse 9, Jesus says this, You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking but the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus is saying, whether we are having a quiet time, if you like, where we are in England at the moment, or whether we're having a very difficult time in a place like Egypt, we're not to worry about what will happen at the time. I was at the first conference held in Cyprus in the late 80s, on persecution and a lot of the people that came had actually been in prison and we were sharing on a day-to-day -day basis for a week all these different things and it was amazing the testimonies they had 
of how God spoke to them and God met them in their prison cells and even during the, the periods of torture. It wasn't what you would kind of be fearful. It, it, it was a different thing altogether. They were so aware of God's presence and power. It was just amazing. And so Jesus says, don't worry about what you have to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. So our level of commitment needs to take into account the possibility of the kind of persecution that we see in other countries. But it may not happen to us. But it may happen in a more insidious way that we feel persecuted either in our workplace or somewhere, even in our family, for example, if most of our family are opposed to our belief system. And to that extent, we will have to sometimes give an account for what we believe. But we needn't be fearful about that. We can rely on the Holy Spirit to give us the right words to speak at the right time. So as we think about that today, and we think about our commitment and what hinders our commitment, let's come to the point where we say, yes, Lord, I want to be like your first disciples and be committed to follow you through whatever comes against me in the future. Let us pray.